Um, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. And we'll place a Bible in your hand. I do want to do a quick little shout out to the guy in the Avs jersey back there. Good job, by the way. I just want to let you know, last night I wore my Avs jersey. Okay, just so you know, in the pulpit. Because, yeah, shout out to them, winning the Central Division and, and in the playoffs again, defending Stanley Cup champions. Quick shout out. You know, it's not quite often that we get to, here in Colorado, uh, raise up a sports team that's a champion. But the Avs, we are able to do that. Baseball, mm, we got some lean years ahead, but I'm hoping, I'm hoping. But anyway, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 3 here this morning, finishing up here in chapter 3. We've been going through the book of Exodus, and, and we have the call of Moses here at the burning bush, and we went over that a couple weeks ago. And, and when we reflect back here, we can clearly see that godly service begins with being in the presence of the Lord. Here in verse 10, before we're called to do what we're being called to do, we need to be in the presence of the Lord. But here we have the calling in verse 10 where it says, Come now, therefore, and I will send you, speaking to Moses, to Pharaoh, and that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And so he's being called to be the deliverer of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. Here is his calling. He has this burning bush experience here before God. But before he sends Moses, he first must bring Moses into his presence. The biblical preparation for service is always going to be found in being in the presence of the Lord, Yahweh. And so here in chapter 3, verse 4, he says, God called him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. You're before the Lord here. And before we go out, we must come into God's presence. So God brings Moses into that place, which is holy ground. I would submit to you, your holy ground is every time you meet and sit with the Lord. That's holy ground. That place where Moses can commune with God before being sent into Egypt to speak to Pharaoh. We need to be in God's presence in our devotional time with the Lord. Satan, in the worst way, wants to distract He wants to redirect us. He doesn't want us to hear from God. And so he's going to make you think that you can go out this day in your own strength. That you don't need to spend time in the word of God, communing with him. Yet we read in God's word in Joshua 1.8, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it, For then you will make your way prosperous, then you will have good success. Joshua is being told here. He says, look, you need to meditate in the word of God day and night and to make sure you do all that is written therein. Just to know it and not to do it doesn't help you at all. And you can't do it unless you know it. So if you know it and you do it, he tells us right here that guess what? Your way will be prosperous. You'll have great success in the Lord. Psalm 63.1 says, and some of you aren't going to like this. Oh God, you're my God. Early will I seek you. Men are going, man, really, does that have to be early? How early? How early is early? 
you know. 530. 530. It's right there. All right. Lord, is that from you? I don't know. You decide. 530, he said, right there. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. Understand what early means. Some, some of you work a night shift, so we get that. You know, so you're coming home early and you want to get to bed. That's fine. I think what is mentioned here is that whenever you wake up, that is what you should probably do first is go and meet with the Lord. Okay. And some, you know, uh, I understand this, Dave. Honestly, first thing I do when I get up, I make coffee. I get that. That's okay. You want to be alert for the Lord. So I get that. All right. That's, that's fine too. But it's kind of like the first thing you want to do Meet with God. Don't get met by the distractions of the day, going about your day, and then meeting with him later on. It's kind of like the first things first. Meet with God first. He is your commander-in-chief. How are you supposed to know how to go out that day if you don't first meet with him? Jesus himself in Mark 1, verse 35 says, Now in the morning I have risen a long while before daylight. He went out, departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. If Jesus sought to be alone with God, to commune with God, to pray to God, how much more should we? How much more should we? Jesus said he came to do the Father's will. If we want to know what the Father's will is, if we want to know what the will of God is, we need to spend time with him. In John 17, 17, Jesus said, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. James 1.22, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Service begins in the presence of the Lord, spending time with God alone, in prayer, listening to God by reading the word. It is then and only then that you're going to truly be able to be used by him throughout that day. In John 15, verse 4 and 5, knowing that Jesus is the vine and, and, and that believers are the branches, Jesus gives us this parable And he says in verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing of eternal significance, is what that means. You could do nothing. We need to abide in Jesus. So what does it mean to abide? The word abide in the Greek is meno. It means to stay. It means to abide, continue, dwell, endure, be present, remain, stand, tarry. In other words, to abide in Christ means to remain in Christ, to spend time with Christ. Your victory in the Lord to produce fruit is going to be directly related to how much time you spend with the Lord. With Jesus. If you reread this and you put where it says abide, spend time in or with, it reads like this. Spend time in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it spends time in the vine, neither can you unless you spend time in me. I am the vine, you're the branches. He who spends time in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without meaning spending time with him, you can do nothing. Nothing. And so there has to be a a, a time during the day that you're communing 
with your heavenly father in Christ Jesus. And you'll be able to bear much fruit. So Moses here is learning this lesson before he's sent out. He has to be able to commune and spend time with God. And we spend time in his presence in prayer, reading of the word. And he's about to be called into service. And just so you know, everybody who has received Jesus has been called into service. It's not just me, okay, because I'm a pastor and everything. No, you all have been given a calling. We read in 1 Peter 4.10 that everyone has been given a gift for God's kingdom. And then in Romans 12.6, it says to use that gift. Well, you can only use that gift that is going to bear fruit for the kingdom of God is if you're spending time with God. Spending time with God. In verse 11 of of, uh, Exodus chapter 3, it goes on, it says, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So Moses is, is kind of questioning his calling. Okay, Who am I? Who am I that you're choosing to be the deliverer of Israel? He's going, who am I? I am inadequate. And I love this because the Lord does not say, Oh, Moses, you're not inadequate. He doesn't tell Moses, and he says, oh, that's not, that's not true. You're being too hard on yourself. Moses, you're awesome. You just need to believe in yourself. <laughs> God doesn't tell him that. As a matter of fact, God kind of confirms Moses. Lord, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm just not all that. I, I, I'm kind of inadequate. God says, okay, moving on. Um, and... <laughs> He goes, you're, he, he, in essence, says, you're right. But here's the answer to that, Moses. I will be with you. I will certainly be with you. has nothing to do with you. It has to do that I will certainly be with you. God answers Moses' reluctance by saying, I will be with you. I will be with you. I will be in your presence the point here is that it's God's ability, not Moses's. The Lord, does, the Lord does not call us because we are all that, that we have this amazing ability, okay? God calls us because he's expecting us to have faith. He's calling Moses to a position of faith. Shouldn't this make you feel great about this calling, knowing that I will be with you? That's what your confidence needs to be in, not in yourself, but knowing that God is indeed with you. So God's calling Moses to a position of faith to recognize and expect a very, very sufficient God is going to do with someone who's very, very insufficient. And that's absolutely true. So Moses' first objection is, "I'm, I'm not adequate. God's response is, no, you're not, but I will be with you. But I will be with you. Verse 13 then says, Then Moses says to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So Moses' reaction shows he's kind of contemplating the mission at this point. Okay, he's going to be with me. But if I go to them 
And I begin to tell them, hey, guess what? God has called me to deliver you guys out of Egypt to go to the promised land. So hurry up, go ahead, pack your things, let's go. They're going to say, okay, first off, old man, who are you? All right. And who is this God that you say that you're the spokesman of? It's a good question for him to ask. But he is beginning to contemplate the mission. In Genesis, we've seen the names of God gives us different aspects of God's nature. We've seen the God most high already. We've already seen God who sees me. We've seen God almighty. We've seen God everlasting. And so the people of Israel are going to ask Moses the name of God who sent him because they themselves already know the name of God. And so they're not going to listen to a spokesman of God who doesn't know his name. And God is going to reveal his name in verse 15. But before he does that, he's going to give Moses the nature of his name. And so he says in verse 14, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, I am who I am, the Hebrew word here is haya asher haya, or aye asher, depending on how you pronounce these things. And it means I am who I am, or I am that I am, or he is that he is. Okay? And the point of all this is that it speaks of his very nature, that he is who he is, speaks of his greatness, his power, his might, his very essence, that he is all-sufficient. There's nothing to compare him to. Who is this God? He is who he is. Wow, okay. Just in that very statement is a very essence and power that goes with it. You can't compare him to anything. He is who he is, and that speaks of being greater than anything else. Now, Ashir, it speaks of... Uh, uh, I will be there, I alone will be sufficient, there's no one like him, nor is there any need for another, because I am there. I'm inadequate, yeah, but I will be there. Yeah, but what if the situation, I will be there. Yeah, but what if this happens, I will be there. It doesn't matter what the situation is, my very presence there alone will be sufficient to get through whatever it is going on. It's awesome. It's a great way to answer that. Now, the word ashir here is in the imperfect verbal form. It often has the future in mind, but it could also be speaking of a reoccurring or continual action or state of being. In other words, this expresses a very timeless state of being. Thus, it is speaking of all that there is. And most scholars would agree, I was, I am, I will be, speaks of the eternality of God. It comes from the verb of the form to be, meaning he always has been, always will be in the present, uh, always will be, and will be there in the future as well. This language is only language that God himself can use. No one has the power that he has. No one, no power can keep him from being That he is, is what is mentioned here. This is language that only God can use of himself. And as we proved a few weeks ago, the angel of the Lord is God himself, manifested in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. Jesus uses the I am statement that is spoken of here in the burning bush experience, here 
in verse 14, I am who I am. Jesus uses that very same language for himself. But Dave, when we read about Jesus using this language, it's in the New Testament, it's in the Greek. How do we know it's the exact same thing that is being said here in the Hebrew? It's a great, it's a great question. The interesting thing is, is that um, back in 250 B.C., we have this problem taken care of because we had 70 Jewish scholars that took the Hebrew scriptures and translated it into the Greek. So if you want to look at the Greek New Testament and the Old Testament in the Greek that the Hebrew scholars would have translated it to make sure it is saying the same thing, we have that. It's called the Septuagint. The Septuagint. For example... In Deuteronomy 32, verse 39, it says, Now see that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. God is speaking this. Yahweh is speaking this. I kill, I make alive, I wound, I heal, nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. The phrase there, I am, he, is the Greek word, ego, I, me. Ego, I, me. Two words. Ego, I, me. And then I, me means to be. I exist. Together it means I am. I exist. Now, Isaiah 52, verse 6. says, Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he. Ego, I, me. Who speaks, behold, it is I. Now I want you to go to Isaiah 43. Go with me to Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43 is one of my favorite areas of scripture in in the description of who God is. He will declare to you that there's no one like him. In verse 1 it says, But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. Notice it says, thus says the Lord, Yahweh. Okay. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. For I am Yahweh, your God, the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Go down to verse 10. You are my witnesses, says the Lord. And my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me. This is God, Yahweh speaking. And understand that I am he. Ego, I me. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. There's only one God, Yahweh. Yahweh. Now, when Jesus sends the disciples to cross over the Sea of Galilee. There was a storm, so Jesus comes walking to them on the water. And in John 6, 20, it says, But he said to them, It is I, ego I me. Do not be afraid. He's using the same language that God uses of himself. Same Greek words. Go to John chapter 8. Go to John chapter 8. We're going to see this time and time again. All the I am statements. Ego, I me. Okay. But here in John 8, 23. 
John 8, 23, and he said to them, You are from beneath, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am, ego I me, you will die in your sins. You have to believe that Jesus is Yahweh, that Jesus is God, or you will die in your sins. If you believe that Jesus is anyone else other than God himself, you will die in your sins. You don't get to believe that Jesus is someone other than he has said he is himself. You don't get to make up, well, he was a good prophet, he was a good man, he's a lesser God. No, he's claiming to be, I am, is what he's claiming to be. Go down to John eight fifty three. Go down to verse 53. The Jews are asking him, are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead? Yes, he is. And the prophets that are dead, who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. If I say I do not know him, I should be a liar like you. <laughs> I, I just had to stop there just so you could hear the tone of everything that he's saying there. You guys are liars. But I, do not, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. And the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Most surely I say to you, before Abraham was, Ego I me, I am. He's making it very clear that he is God. He is saying he is Yahweh, is what he is saying. Now go over here to John 13. John 13, verse 18. Jesus says here, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am. Ego, I me. That you'll believe that I am God. I'm prophesying to you right now. Okay, so when it comes to pass, you will know that I am God, that I'm Yahweh. So that happens in chapter 18. We went over this on Good Friday service, but it bears repeating. But here in verse 3 of John chapter 18, go over to 18, verse 3 here. It says, Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing whom all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. Ego, I me. And Judas betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, Ego, I me. I am. They drew back and fell to the ground. <laughs> And we talked about that at Good Friday service. And it says that they, they drew back, you know. So they went back like this. But the, the, the word fall to the ground there is the Greek word pipto. It means to thrust down, to fall prostrate. They are face down before the great I am. Now they're all probably thinking, what, what are we doing? You know, as, as, and then they get back up. And, it, and it's kind of like, Nobody's asking. I'm sure they did. We don't get the narrative of it and everything, but I'm sure some go, what just happened? You know, as they went face down. 
And you know helmets were off. They're disheveled as they're grabbing a helmet, putting it on, and go, oh, wait, that's yours, you know. And, and they're putting on their helmets and trying to get back in line again or, or whatever. But they're thinking, what just happened? Well, guess what? You're before Yahweh, the great I am. And it caused you right there when that was said to go straight to the ground. Because whether you knew it or not, you were on holy ground. You were on holy ground. And so Jesus speaks the divine name and they're affected by the divine presence. They fall down, they worship, they're prostrate before the Lord, uh, Yahweh, Jesus. And so again, fulfilling which would later be said, every knee will bow, every tongue confess of Philippians 2.11. And so Jesus is declaring himself Yahweh. He is declaring that. And then going back here to Exodus chapter 3, going back here to Moses. In verse 15 of Exodus 3, it says, Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial to all generations. Well, what's his name? Right there. The Lord, God of your fathers. The word Lord there, again, all capitalized, that's Yahweh. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, Yahweh. Yahweh. The word Lord there, Yahweh. yod Hey wah Hey. Yahweh. It means a self-existent one or eternal one. It's the name of God. The Lord. The word memorial there is zakir. It means remembrance, memory. In other words, this is how God wants his name to be remembered. His name is Yahweh. It's Yahweh. It's God's personal name. Whereas the name God is a generic name, Elohim. Generic name, like man or mankind is a generic name. You're all mankind. Okay, but you also have a personal name, just like Moses is his personal name. Yahweh is God's personal name. And nowhere in Scripture are we told not to call God by his personal name. Nowhere do we see this. Instead, we see all of his servants calling him Yahweh. We see Noah calling him Yahweh in Genesis 9.26. We see Abraham calling him Yahweh in Genesis 15.2. We see Moses do it here in chapter 5. If you go over here to Exodus chapter 5, he introduces Pharaoh with that name. He says in chapter 5, Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, God of Israel. He introduces Pharaoh to the God of Israel as Yahweh. And he says, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, nor will I let Israel go. He introduced Pharaoh to a name that he wasn't familiar with. He's heard of Elohim before. He's heard of God. He's heard of generic terms for God and things like that. But he has never heard Yahweh before. Why? Because that's the personal name of God for the Hebrews. That's why. That's why. And so we see it here. Now, go over here to Exodus 15. Very exciting 
area of scripture right after God does an amazing, amazing miracle of parting the Red Sea and and all of Israel walks through there and then Pharaoh's army comes and he swallows them up by the Red Sea and it causes them to sing a song unto the Lord. Oh, but don't use the name of, of God. Don't use his personal name, really. Because here we see all of Israel using this name, Yahweh. 15 verse 1, then Moses, the children of Israel, sang this song to Yahweh and spoke, saying, I will sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse, its rider. He is thrown into the sea. Yahweh is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God. I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. And you continue to read, it says it again in verse 6 a couple times, and then verse 11, and verse 16, and verse 17, and verse 18, and verse 19. It's being said over and over again. And the children of Israel sang this song to Yahweh using his name. And he tells us right there in verse 3, Yahweh is his name. Unless they got it wrong in the song, okay, But we don't see that. Instead, we see God receive this song. He receives this song. It's been said that the Jewish sages associate the covenant name of God, Yahweh, with breath. With breath. The idea is that the name itself, when pronounced, is sound of breathing. The two syllables of the name correspond to the intake and outtake of a single breath. In this way, the theory goes, our breath evokes the name of God. A natural voice, uh, uh, the, uh, the inhaling, sounds like, Yahweh, Yahweh. You breathe in, you breathe out. Thus, with every breath we take, we're actually speaking the name of God. How cool is that? The Jewish sages came up with that. It's God himself that breathed in us a breath of life we see in Genesis 2-7, isn't it? Interesting. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostril the breath of life. And man became a living soul. Did he breathe in him going, Yahweh. Interesting. And we still retain that breath. Think about it. Every time a baby draws his or first breath, they're saying the name of Yahweh. And then they cry. Okay, but first it's Yahweh. Okay. And so we look at this and the size and sufferings of the wordless appeals to God who hears. I mean, every time we breathe, it's Yahweh. And when we seek speaking God's name, we die. That breath that Yahweh breathed into Adam's nostrils gave him life and set the course of the whole human race to speak of God when breathing, whether they realize it or not. When Jesus breathed into the disciples after the resurrection there in the upper room, and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Is it possible that he said, Yahweh, and then the Spirit came into them? I think it's very possible, very possible. Going back here to Exodus. You know, when 
Exodus 13 through 22, verses 13 through 22 here in, in uh, chapter 3, kind of fall into two sections. We see verse 13 and, and 14, Moses and the Lord, and then verses 15 through 17, Moses and Israel, and then verse 18 and 22, Moses and Egypt. And so here in verses uh, uh, 13 through 14, you, you have God telling Moses he's the self-existing one, I was, I am, I will be. This is the eternal God, a self-existing God who speaks. God is speaking to Moses. Moses, Moses, here I am. Take your sandals off. You're standing on holy ground. And then he begins to explain to Moses what he's about to do with Israel. And then he calls Moses. He is speaking to Moses. We worship a God who speaks. We worship a God whose word matters. His word matters. We don't worship stupid idols of metal and stone and wood that cannot speak. We worship a God who speaks, who gives his word, and his word matters. It matters. And it's always been this way. God's people have always known God's word. Adam possessed the word of God and it was to be obeyed. And the privilege of obeying God's word is that he will be able to continue to live there in the Garden of Eden. The place that God fellowshiped with Adam. Abraham was also set apart from his contemporaries in Mesopotamia. Why? Because God spoke to him. That's why. God spoke to him and made Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, his word bearers to the covenant that God spoke to him. God's word. And under the new covenant in Christ, Paul tells us in the second letter to Timothy that the church is now the possessor and student of the word of God. I want you to go to 2 Timothy. Go over here to 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy, starting here in chapter 1, in verse 13... Paul is telling Timothy, verse 13, hold fast the pattern of sound words. Now, what words do you think he's talking about? Which you have heard from me in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Okay, so what words is he talking about? I would submit to you he's speaking about the word of God. But Dave, okay, but it's kind of loosely said here. Okay, well, let's continue on here in chapter 2 here of Second Timothy. Look what Paul says here. You therefore, my son, speaking to Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things that you have heard from me, Paul. Among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Right here, you have four generations. You have Paul, 
pouring into Timothy, that's the second generation, who's going to pour into faithful men, that's the third generation, who are then going to pour into others, another generation of people right there. And what is he going to pour into them? I would submit to you the word of God. We are caretakers of the word of God. Go to verse 14 of 2 Timothy. It says, remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord, not to strive about words to no profit to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's God's word. Again, Paul is exhorting Timothy to remind them, to charge them, meaning believers, to rightly divide the word of truth. He goes on to say in 2 Timothy 3, verse 14, But you must continue the things which you have learned, been assured of, knowing from which you have learned them, and that from childhood you have, you have known the holy scriptures. What word is he talking about? He's talking about the scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus from childhood. Someone was pouring in the Holy Spirit. That was his mother. Moms, you guys are great. The way that you pour the scriptures into your kids, the way you pray for your kids. I love the fact that it's brought up here that the testimony of Timothy is all because of his mother pouring the scriptures into him because he had a Greek father, an unbelieving father, but he had a believing mother. And that built him up to what God has called him to do. And then he says, all scripture. The word that's being spoken, pour this word into them. Make sure you raise up people that can also teach others the word. What word is he talking about? He's talking about the scriptures. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. Who are you pouring this into? Other men, women of God, that they may complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And then what does he encourage uh, Timothy to do then? In verse 1, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I love this charge. He says, I'm saying this before God right now. I'm charging you before God, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I am giving you this charge, Timothy, right now who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Boom. Every minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ should have that stamped on their forehead. And if you don't do that, you should be burst into flames. That's Dave's judgment. That's not the mercy and grace of God, okay? But my goodness, you have the podium here. You you should have a Bible. It should be opened. It should be read. You should follow along. We're called to preach the word, not opinion. The word. Let's stay in the word. And that's what he's exhorted to do. Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Why? Verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound teaching doctrine. 
But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. That would be false teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to fables. Why? Because they want to hear what they want to hear. So they'll raise up false teachers to be able to say, you know what, God wants you healthy and wealthy and not to go through any issues in this world. Everything's supposed to just be wonderful now. Who doesn't want to hear that? You have some infirmity, you have some sickness. You want to be told that God wants you healthy. You know, you're not rich and you're not, but boy, if God wants me rich, I want to be rich if that's what God says, if he wants me rich. Why wouldn't you want to hear from people like that? It appeals to what? Your flesh, not your spirit. And those are false teachers. Yeah, but Dave, that guy's ministry has thousands and thousands of people. Of of course it does. Who doesn't want to hear that? Who wants to hear Difficult news. Come, everybody, let me tell you about how you need to suffer for Jesus. Who wants to hear that message? How you need to pick up your cross and follow him. How you need to deny yourself daily. That's what God's word says. It doesn't say he wants you to be healthy and wealthy. It doesn't say that at all. But we need to deny ourselves. And we're told to preach the word, the word, the word, the word, the word. And that's what the church does now. It's the body of Christ. And we are now his word bearers to a very lost world. Going back here to Exodus, I I believe that one of the distinguishing marks of the church is that we are the trustees over the given word of God. And this is how it is with Moses. He is sent as a bearer of the divine word of God to Israel And Egypt. And the divine name was spoken to him. We read here in verse 16 of Exodus. Go and gather the elders of Israel together. Say to them, the Lord God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me saying, I've surely visited you, seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites. Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. So God again repeats what he's already told Moses at the very beginning, you know, uh, here in chapter 3. He tells them what he's going to do. Now, Moses, you're going to tell them what I've told you, and he repeats it again. The word elders here in the Hebrew is zakain, and it means old or aged. In other words, these are older men. T. Desmond Alexander in his commentary on Exodus says, the elders of Israel would be the tribal system that characterized early Israelite society. As heads of tribal clans, the elders exercised an important leadership role among the Israelites. So when Pharaoh and his government came to Israel to tell them what they are now going to do and how he's going to put them under subjection and things like that, he would have first have come to the leadership of Israel. And then they were going to go back and explain to the people. And this is how it would work. So Israel had a leadership of elders, of older men, okay, that can lead and guide them there in Egypt. And so these, this is the leadership of Israel. Moses is told to go out to them for, first, the elders, the leadership of Israel, who would most likely know 
about the past promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that he would now tell them, now's the time to go back to the promised land. In Exodus 24, 9 through 11, um, we read that 70 elders accompanied Moses and Aaron up to Mount Sinai for a feast in the presence of God. In the presence of God. Now, what we're reading here I want to make this very clear. Isn't something that just Moses is just trying from memory, trying to remember what it is that happened, okay? What you have here is that here in the Bible, you have exactly what God has spoken and has told to godly men what to write down. And here it's Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, as we talked about before, They're not writing down their opinions. They're not exaggerating in their storytelling. They're not distorting the facts. They wrote and spoke only those things God told them to write or say. The Bible is not man's word. It is God's. And it's God's word to man. We read in 2 Peter 1.20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This is also true here of Exodus. Moses writes down exactly what he is supposed to say to the elders, to the Israelites, to Pharaoh. These words that we are reading have been recorded for us, the very words of God. The very words of God. In this repeated promise that God has given Moses to say to the elders of Israel, it reaffirms that God is the God of the past, the present, and the future. God is the God of the past who promised salvation to the patriarchs. He's the God of the present because he recognizes their present condition of their affliction there in Egypt. And... And he is the God of the future who's going to now lead them out of that affliction into the promised land that was promised to the patriarchs before Moses. Salvation is not rescuing out of something, but it's also bringing you into something. And so they're going to be saved out of the affliction of Israel, uh, out of Egypt in order to serve the living God in the land of promise. And he says, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, after 400 years in Egypt, Moses had the job of announcing that now is a time for Israel to go back to Canaan and take the land that God promised to their fathers. Now, I would submit to you this. It's not as though Israel wanted to leave Egypt, okay? Because Egypt, the land there was good, good for their flocks, good for uh, all the vegetables and the produce that they were growing. This is one of the reasons why after he leads them out and they're wandering around in the wilderness, they, they keep on saying, oh, if we could only go back to the leeks and the cucumbers and all this wonderful food that we have. It's not as though Israel wanted to leave Egypt. They just didn't want the affliction that was in Egypt. They would rather just be made more comfortable in Egypt. And so this getting out of Egypt is also now God is going to try and get Egypt out of them. Okay? And so that's why when he comes on the scene, hey, we're going to lead you to the, uh, to the, to the promised land, they weren't going, woohoo, right on. They were kind of going, who are you again? 
And then as we go through the, the text, as he goes before Pharaoh, he actually makes things more difficult for the people of Israel. And they're not really too keen on that. They're not really excited about Moses being the deliverer at all. And so we're going to be able to see this. They really just want to be made more comfortable than anything else. And, 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 and Moses is going to go back to, to, to the Lord saying, they're not listening to me. They're not listening to me. Verse 18. But God tells them they'll eventually heed your voice, Moses. Verse 18. Then they will heed your voice. You shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt. You shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice the Lord our God. But I'm sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. We'll we'll come back to verse uh, 19 here uh, pretty shortly. Um, You know, because I believe this is where you start to see that God is already showing you that Pharaoh's heart is hard. God doesn't harden Pharaoh's heart before it was already hard to begin with, okay? God isn't going to do something and it's contrary to what that person's condition of his heart already is, okay? So his heart is already hard here. And, uh, and we'll get back to that when we see God hardening his heart in a few chapters later. In verse 20, it says, So I will stretch out my hand, strike Egypt with all my wonders. That's speaking of the ten plagues. Which I'll do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. I love this. Um, I will give this people favor. You shall not go away empty-handed. God promises to arrange things not only to move Pharaoh's heart, but also to move the heart of the Egyptian people. So when Israel did depart, they would be showered with silver, gold, and clothing. This is not stealing. This was not extortion. As when we get there, we'll be able to go over more in detail. But it really suggests the appropriate wages of what Israel were, uh, earned during that time when they were under affliction. I find this interesting because years later, God would remind the Jewish people of their affliction and how when he moved them out of slavery, that they did not leave empty-handed. So in Deuteronomy chapter 15, God says this in verse 12, If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, then in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you, and when you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally with your flock, your threshing floor, from your wine press, from what the Lord has blessed you with, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this thing that day because you were a slave and you did not leave empty-handed nor are you going to allow for your slaves to leave empty-handed amen